All right, flipping your Bibles to Exodus 20, and we're looking at one verse today, Exodus 20:13 and Deuteronomy 5:17. Uh, both say the same thing, so you can just hang out there in Exodus. And uh, our message today is called Image in Life, and so I'll read that text, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Exodus 20, verse 13 says, God's holy word from Mount Sinai. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have come together in the midst of an extremely volatile culture, attempting to learn from your word, be encouraged and spurred on. Uh, Father, we want to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Um, Father, we confess that our culture is a murderous culture, one that does not seem to be even remotely repentant for. Would you forgive us? We petition your son this morning and ask that your Holy Spirit would aid us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, we have now come to the sixth word. The sixth word, which is actually the first word of the so-called second table of the law. So we've gotten through the first five of the Ten Commandments and now we're into the sixth. And as I've mentioned before, the commandments are very much intertwined with each other. Uh, They're intertwined with, with the others. To worship false gods, for example, before the face of Yahweh is akin to attempted murder. (laughs) To worship false gods, that's the first commandment, before the face of Yahweh is akin to attempted murder, both of God himself and the worshiper himself. It's not as though God can actually be murdered um, in, in the fullest sense of the word. Jesus took on human flesh and died as a human being, fully God, fully man. Um, but to worship false gods is connected to this idea of murder. It is the malicious and malevolent attempt to usurp the heavenly throne room. Covetousness, for example, that is the tenth commandment, once that's fashioned in the heart, can and does lead to anger and hatred in the heart, which according to Jesus is akin to murder. So as um, Annabelle just read, Jesus sort of refocuses the commandment there. If you have anger in your heart towards someone, it's essentially murder in your heart. So the commandments then speak not just on their own, but they speak of each other. The commandments speak of each other, and together, of course, they speak as a whole. And as I've said many times in this series, the ten words are situated within the larger covenantal context of Israel's specific history. So Israel, we know, is Yahweh's beloved son. Uh, That's from Exodus 4. His son was enslaved in Egypt, which was and is symbolic of the great humanist agenda. What is the great humanist agenda? Dominion by power and subjugation. So if (laughs) we're sort of in that Egypt mode today. But that's the great humanist agenda, and Israel was enslaved in it. Dominion by power, dominion by subjugation. Israel had been swallowed up and consumed by the false gods of Egypt, and were suffering without Sabbath rest as a result. So the great story of of the Exodus is the paradigm for the rest of Scripture as it pertains to redemption. So what does it mean to be redeemed? With the song, There's Power in the Blood, to be redeemed is to be bought back. You're being bought back from the slave market. You are being, uh, your sins are forgiven. You are brought into covenant. Father Yahweh, we know in the Exodus story, he conquered the false gods and redeemed his son from the slave market. And as I said, this is what Jesus does for us as well. So the act of redemption is always an act of grace. It's always an act of grace. Long before the giving of the law, 
we see Yahweh dispensing his grace to his people. So I, I want to emphasize this again, and I, I've, I think probably every week I have, but it's important to note that, that um, the law was given in the context of grace. And I think people miss that today, and, and they sort of put this sharp distinguisher. Um, many Christians have done that. Lutherans are at the forefront of that line too. But many, many, many people see the law and grace as completely opposite. They're not related at all. I'm going to cover that issue more specifically in the last week of this series. But just for now, remember that the giving of the law was in the context of grace. God had acted in his grace, and then he gave his law for a very specific reason. So the ten, the ten words are there to direct the son how to build his house on the rock of Christ who was to come. This is what it looks like to build your house on the rock. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness, and so on. You shall have no other gods. That's what it means to build your house on the rock. So Father Yahweh tells Israel, the Son, to live in the freedom of the Father's grace and mercy, which is what the law ultimately points us to. So if you want to be free, I know it's contradictory in our modern day language, but if you want to be free, you, you, freedom is only done when you obey Christ and his commands. That's what love looks like. That's what freedom looks like. So let's look at our verse closer. Exodus 20, 13. It says, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. Deuteronomy 5 says the same thing. In Hebrew, what you should know is there are only two words in Hebrew. Not murder. That's literally just straight, as pure of a translation as you can get. Not murder. You are not to murder. The King James Version, some of us uh, recall that from, from our younger days. Uh, I memorized a lot of scripture as a kid and the King James Version. But this one is, uh, this one says, thou shalt not kill. The King James says, thou shalt not kill. The word for murder is ratzak, in which it's one of those words where if we understand in order to obey this verse, we need to know what it is we're talking about. So questions come up. Thou shalt not murder. murder. Well, does that... <laughs> Does that rule out the death penalty that God would later legislate? Um, I've, I've had many debates on this with people. Thou shalt not murder. Does that mean that the death penalty, for example, is something that God would, would himself put in place? Does that mean that that's, we shouldn't support that? What about if you're an abolitionist of abortion, as we are, does that mean that you should be against capital punishment? If, if you're against the sin of abortion in that specific sense, does that mean, if you're going to be consistent, does that mean then you should also be against capital punishment because people, people die? Well, let's answer those questions. The term here in context, one, it doesn't bring up issues of veganism or vegetarianism um, and the death of animals. The death of animals is not, some, that's not something that's prohibited in scripture. It's not dealing with the death penalty. God himself legislates this as we'll see. Nor is this verse going to rule out the ideology of pacifism, where just entirely passive. If a thief breaks into your house, you're supposed to just roll over and let them do whatever they want to do. Well, not in my house. Things will take place. We'll just say that. Um, so we're not dealing with that the pacifism either because God himself spells out what it looks like to have a just war. Just warfare is a real thing, as we'll see in a little bit. 
So the meaning of you shall not murder or thou shalt not kill, as the King James says, is strictly about homicide. Uh, it's about th this pernicious and malicious destruction of image-bearing human life. The, the taking of someone's life. Now, I want to make sure I clarify because it's not just homicide in our modern language. The Bible, along with a lot of ancient Near Eastern texts, makes a distinction between intentional murder, that is, you hate someone so much so that you want to kill them and then you do. That is obviously ruled out here, what we call homicide. But it's also, it also rules out unintentional or accidental killing, what we call manslaughter. So you're not supposed to accidentally kill someone, which is why you should be careful when you have a chainsaw, right? Or, you know, we're not supposed to be careless and negligent in our behavior um, around other people and in human life. We should be very thoughtful. We should be wise. We should be judicious and shrewd. We should pay attention to what we're doing so that we don't accidentally uh, take life. And that, of course, happens. You think of DUIs and drunk driving and, and, and things like that. Someone um, didn't necessarily intentionally want to do that, but they decided to intoxicate themselves and drive and it happened. They're still culpable, but it, nece it wasn't necessarily malicious. They didn't think in their hearts, I'm going after that person at that time. So th this commandment rules out both of those things. We should be careful about whether it's intentional or unintentional. We want to protect life, and that's the main issue here. John Calvin said it this way. He said, the sum of the commandment is that we should not unjustly do violence to anyone. And note that phrase, we should not unjustly do violence to anyone. If someone comes into my house to do violence, I will meet that violence with violence that is justified. And that's the logic. Now, long before the giving of the law at Sinai, God spells out this particular issue in Genesis 9-6, which reads this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In God's sovereign decision, the authorization for capital punishment for murder was made here, and it was made right after the flood story. That's Genesis 7, but here we're in Genesis 9. It was always wrong, by the way, to take the life of another, and we do see that happening right away in the book of Genesis. Kids, do you remember who killed who very early on? One of Adam and Eve's sons. Who? Do you remember? Adam and Eve had sons. What were their names? And one of them killed the other. Yes, so Cain, right? Cain killed Abel. So you got, you got Abel. That was good. Good job, Maya. So Cain killed Abel. From the very beginning, we knew that that was a problem. But here in Genesis 9, we have essentially an institutional command. A murderer is to be put to death. That's what the Bible teaches. A murderer is to be put to death. And the reason is given, God made man in his own image. So the first and the second word, the first and second commandments sort of converge on this commandment. In the first commandment, Yahweh forbids worshiping other gods. That is an assault, a violent assault on the glory of God. The second word, the second commandment, forbids the creation and service of idols. And so, again, that's an, an attempted murder in that sense, too, of worshiping and stealing from the glory of God. So the sixth word here, the, the command against murder, rules out any attack on God's image bearers. 
any attack on God's image bearers is ruled out. Peter Lightheart, he, he noted that, that the first and second halves of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, line up with each other. So if you could just visualize the five here on the one table and the five here, uh, I'll show you how they match up. Idolatry is a kind of murder, and murder is idolatry. So that's the first and the sixth commandments. Worshiping and serving images is actually spiritual uh, adultery. That's the second commandment and the seventh commandment. So worshiping idols is spiritual adultery. When we take God's name in vain, that's the third commandment, we are essentially thieves. That is the eighth commandment. So the third and the eighth go together. Sabbath is done to remember, to renew vows and covenant with God as we reflect on his timetable and his work that he's given us. And refusing to do that is actually to, to bear false witness. So now we have the fourth commandment lining up with the ninth commandment. And lastly, as to be expected, coveting, that's the tenth commandment. When we covet, we destroy the health of the family and thus the subsequent health of every institution in society. So the fifth and the tenth commandment go together. Now back to Genesis. The story of Genesis tells us how murky and bleak sin can be. When you read the beginning of Genesis, you, hear, you, you see a man doing whatever was right in his own eyes and, and God being sorry that he'd, he'd made man and th that sort of language. You, you kind of see all those things come together. But Genesis tells us a lot about how murky and bleak sin can be. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they did so of, of essentially violating all of the Ten Commandments. And the fruit of this disobedience was a war between the seed of the woman, symbolizing righteousness, and the seed of the serpent, symbolizing evil. So Cain slew his brother Abel, and this is because Jesus told us in John 8, 44, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So murder was always his intention. That's the intention of Satan. That's the intention of people who follow him, the seed of the serpent. Murder is just part of what they want to see happen. So the seed of the serpent, the people who are uh, against Christ in his kingdom, they are marked by violence and murder, the very thing that God rules out here in this commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Murder itself is ultimately a refusal to bow before Father Yahweh. It resolves to create an idol out of the self. Violence in the heart trickles out into the disrespecting of parents, the seizing of God's time, destroying God's family, essentially ruining your neighbor's life. That's what murder does, an anger in the heart. The propensity to hate in the heart and then express that hatred in violation of the Ten Commandments, that is the end goal of the rebellious. Have, has anybody, did you get mad this week at all? No. No. Charlotte had a holy week. <laughs> or was that, uh, I don't know who said that. I know it wasn't you, Seth, but... Uh, <laughs> If, if that anger is taken to its logical conclusion, the only way to expend that anger is to burn it out, right? It burns out. And how does it burn out? It burns out when the object of that wrath is eliminated. That's the connection of anger and, and murder. So righteous anger is one thing. There are things you should be angry about, namely taxes and politicians. You should be angry, but, and that's a righteous anger, but violent anger is a whole nother thing. And that's what we're dealing with here. That's what Jesus was dealing with. And that's what we're dealing here as well. So I want to, I want to look into this a little bit more deeper. 
The Bible situates all of life in the context of a living, loving creator. That's what we have in the Bible. God is a living, loving creator. Everything stems from that. God is the creator. From the very beginning, God took great care in putting together his image bearers at the center of his created order. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, as far as symbols go, as we read Genesis, Adam and Eve were intermediaries stationed inside God's temple world in order to work and keep the world. That's why they were put there. The, the world was God's temple. That was his dwelling place. It's a special place, something he created uh, for his glory to be shown off and exercised in creation. And he put Adam and Eve there as image bearers. And they were there in this temple world to work it, to keep it, to guard it, protect it, to develop it, and all of those things. They were, in other words, to be prophetic truth tellers. They were to be priestly guardians and caretakers. And they were to be kingly managers and governors as God's special people. And in Christ, we have that as well. He restores that in us. But life itself is a tremendous gift. Life itself is a tremendous gift. I remember when my first, um, when Elijah was born, my oldest son, and uh, aside from the, the trauma of what hospitals do to you, um, <laughs> mostly unnecessary, uh, I remember though, I, I still remember to this day the room, how it was set up, and uh, just the incredible <laughs> gory nature of it, shall we say, but also the beauty as well. And uh, of course, shedding a tear, you know, when, when that moment came. And you just stop and you realize, as many of you have already done with your children, you stop and you realize, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. How could anyone want to, to terminate this? How could anyone want to violate this? And, and that's because it, it is a beautiful thing. Life is a tremendous gift. So to have life is to bear the image of God. And to bear the image of God is to have life. So image bearing, image bearing is more than having the capacity to act like God, though that's part of it. To image God is to have in some capacity, albeit finitely, the ability to act with personality as a true living man and woman. We do share certain attributes with God, namely the ability to communicate, experience emotions, we think, we act, etc. But we don't know, you know, there's things we don't share with God, certain attributes that we don't share. We're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at once. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything, even though Google tries to. Uh, we don't know everything. So we're not like God in that sense, but we are like God in some other senses. But imaging is more than just reflecting his absolute personality in certain degrees and variations. Being made in the image of God in this temple world is about planting, advancing, and sustaining Christian culture. That's, our, that's the task before us. We are cultivators, we are cult culture makers, and this calling is immensely valuable and significant. In fact, God forbids, for example, total warfare requiring Israel in Deuteronomy 20. Uh, it's a unique verse, Deuteronomy 20, 19. Um, God says when you go to war, you're not to destroy the trees. Now, why in the world would God in that moment care about the trees? Well, that's because he cares in a defensive war. He cares more about um, 
the glory of God in, in creation. He cares more about our ability to, to worship and serve Him and, and destroying trees. That's, that, that's just needless behavior. So war is not against the earth. That's the point. War is not against the earth. It's against evil. And we looked at the just war thing. I'm not going to get into this too much, but in the Politics of Humanism series, we looked at the war issue. But for now, just suffice it to say that war itself, according to scriptural standards, war itself can only be properly and lawfully done when it's done in terms of God's law. So when we're made in the image of God, we're expect to reflect him. And when he sets out his standards, we should abide by them. Every standard he's given us. Certain standards we abide in Christ because they're no longer applicable, because they pertain to the temple, they pertain to the priesthood, and so on. But laws like this, God doesn't want us to just do whatever it is we think is right in our own eyes. That's the very thing he forbade back in Genesis. So even, even the process of something like a just defensive war, it gives consideration. I'm just using this as, a, as an example, but it gives us ju- a consideration for the cultural mandate that man is to carry out. Hence why they're, not, they're told not to dest- destroy the trees. If only the orcs had listened. <laughs> The orcs sinned against God. They were destroying trees, and, and, and of course, they were the evil ones, and thank the Lord for Frodo. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> you, you get the point. So image-bearing matters. Image-bearing reflects God in obedience to his law word. Now, there is intrinsic value given from God to human life. When God created a man and woman, male and female, he bestowed upon them the breath of life. He put life and value and dignity on them their significance for being a human being in the world. We, uh, from the very moment of conception, by the way, from the very moment of conception, we are made in the image and likeness of God. You didn't suddenly become a human being when you were born. Uh, that, that, that stuff was already in, going forward. <laughs> um, you were simply birthed that day, but you had been a person. You have been, you have been a reflection of the image of God a human being with value from the moment of conception. We are crowned with honor and purpose, Psalm 8 says. And when we view life through this lens, certain things follow. And when a culture does not look at life through this, through this lens, then trouble abounds. Take, take, for example, the Darwinian evolutionists or even the uh, materialists like Karl Marx. Life in this world is just one big accident. It's just one accident upon other accidents. The evolutionary process just keeps happening, so we have to deal with what's in front of us. You know, so if a baby, for example, becomes an inconvenience, then you can, based on uh, an erroneous utilitarianism, you can just discard the child and terminate his or her life. That's an evolutionary worldview. We've slaughtered tens of millions of children since Roe v. Wade, and even more are being murdered through chemical drugs that can be purchased in a vending machine. I remember a few years ago at George Mason University, we were ministering there and the big talk of the town was they're getting these uh, vending machines where you can go for free, by the way, push a button, take the pill, go home and kill your child. That's in your, in your stomach. Like that, that's, you know, that's happened already and it continues to happen. So in a materialistic world where we're all just evolved, I mean, who cares, right? Who cares? Why does that even matter? 
If, if it's just you needing to, you know, convenience yourself because I'm not ready to, quote, have a child right now, or I, quote, don't have the finances. These are all the things we hear all the time. But in that type of worldview, who cares, right? It's just a, it's just a child. It's just a male or a female made in the image of God. Who cares? Law in that framework, and that's what we're all living through right now, this medical mafia hell, law through that framework becomes relativistic and subjective. It's relativistic and subjective. So without the fixed standard of God and his law and the value of human life, the only possible way is to, to get ahead is by power and subjugation. America isn't heading, we're not like treading new territory. In, in some ways we are, just through experience, but really we're just going back to Egypt. That's what we, that America wants to be Egypt again. Power and subjugation. That's, that's the name of the game. That's the humanistic um, hope and aspiration. So we can conclude rather easily that our culture today is a violent, murderous culture. Malice, hatred, jealousy, and envy, once conceived in the heart, begins to be justified in the mind and then carried out with your hands. Murder, the intentional killing and taking of human life, is almost the de facto position of our culture. How else do you explain the abortion holocaust? And how else do you explain that to people who are simply apathetic to that truth? With shootings because of drug deals gone bad and money and all of these things, pharmaceutical euthanasia, environmental toxins released into the air, water, and food supply, I think it's safe to say that life cannot be said to be treasured in our culture. Life isn't that important. Life is just, you know, expendable. And it's difficult, by the way, I'm going to give you some stats here in a second because I had fun researching this this week. It's difficult to paint a solid picture regarding the statistics of our nation. So the FBI and even the Bureau of, of, um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, they don't always tell the, same, the whole story on some of these stats about crime and murder and so on. And that's the problem with reporting, even in the CDC and the, and, and the VAERS reporting system, all of this stuff, it's just not reported well. There's not a good system. But um, some things just don't get reported. There's that issue as well. But The Atlantic actually put out an article this past week, and the title of that article was, America is having a violence wave, not a crime wave. And so the writer, the author, argued that violent crime rose in 2020. But property crime continues to trend downward. Through the 70s and up through the 90s, there was a, a sharp increase in violent crime. Um, some of you would know that uh, with regard to some of the big cities. And it's like the same stuff that happens today. It just happened, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But anyway, the author argues that um, many, many are fearing that we're on a bad trend with regard to violent crime in America, and he, he sees those rates as going up. The murder rate the past couple of years, the past two years, rose by 30%, which is the largest increase on record. The article stated that there were about 21,500 murders in 2020, and that's, that's essentially six and a half murders per 100,000 people. Aggravated assault is actually the most common form of violent crime. That rose 12%. Now, most political commentators and even social commentators, you know, they're all baffled by this. They're all baffled. It's just shocking to them. 
It's like they haven't read the first part of Genesis. <laughs> it's shocking to them. And you know, how can this possibly be dealt with? That's the question. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with violent crime in our big cities and uh, you know the, the gun the gun issue in Chicago? And that's you know more murders take place there than in Baghdad. Baghdad I'm told. Um, how do we deal with these issues? Those are the questions. How can crime be eliminated? Do we need more funding? And then you had the whole, you know, the defund the police thing that was really just smoke and mirrors for political, for political gain. Because it's funny that before the election, oh, we want to defund the police. Absolutely. You guys are rioting in the streets. We agree with you. And then the questions raised to resident Biden. Um, I said that right. Uh, he said, well, no, no, we're not defunding the police. They need more funding. So it's, it's just, again, just one of those things. But I'm all for massive reformation of the legal system, uh, the justice system, by the way. But the reality is the humanists have no answer. They don't actually value life. That means they don't have the answer. You can't simultaneously support abortion and then say, well, crime's a problem. We need to deal with it. It's just inconsistent. But we know the answer, and the answer is the Christian worldview. So what does that look like? Jesus warned us in the Sermon on the Mount that hatred for your neighbor is actually murder in your heart. This is because it's not what goes into the man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his heart. The heart is where idols are manufactured and sins are contrived. The heart is the place where idols are manufactured and sins are contrived. It's the heart of the man that must be restored if we're ever going to see statistics like that plummet. And we know that the only way this can happen is having the heart of stone become a heart of flesh. Having someone's dead heart ripped out and a newly glorified Holy Spirit filled and infused heart put in its place. And we know that the gospel is the only thing in the world that can do this. We know that. The Christian worldview, though, means that religion isn't just one section of life. And this is where the failure has happened. This is why the social order around us is continually crumbling and crumbling. The Christian worldview is not just one section of life, cardened off and separated from everything else. Rather, the Christian religion governs the entirety of man, at least it ought to. The entirety of man. The personal creator created people. And this is partly why I can't stand the phrase, by the way, um, and, and no offense if you said this to me, I've forgotten, so I hold you totally unaccountable. Christianity isn't a religion. Have you heard this? You know where I'm going. What is it? It's a personal relationship with Jesus, says the guy with flowers on his Bible cover. Okay. As though Christianity has nothing to do with anything else outside of you and Jesus' time. As people created in the image of God, we are to follow God's prescriptions that are found in his law, which means that we better have an answer for things like crime rates and homicide. How do we deal with this in our culture as this continues to go up? And you know what else isn't counted in these statistics? People who go in with symptoms related to COVID who are then basically put to death because of bad protocols. We don't live in a culture that values life. We live in a culture that is murderous, that wants money more than anything, that wants control more than anything, power, prestige more than anything. Which means we have to have a better answer for things like crime rates and homicides and pharmaceutical companies and everything else. And of course we do, we do have that answer. See, the Bible has a mathematical formula for us. 
It's a personal God and a personal law. Personal God equals personal law. Humanism has a different formula. It's the depersonalization of God, the elevation of man, equals depersonalization of law. And here's what, what I mean. Rushdie basically called it the abstractions that govern, govern man. I'll use an example. In this system, property rights, for example, is a communal enterprise. And that's one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto, by the way. It's not a personal one. You don't really own your property. Your, your property is really just our property, that sort of mindset. So basically, it can be utilized without regard to the person standing on it. It can be taxed, confiscated, destroyed, and disregarded. Property taxes, by the way, just so we're clear, are evil because God owns the land, not the state. But they also are evil because it depersonalizes us, treats us not as human beings in possession of something God has given us, but as people that can be plundered and robbed. And why? Because there's no concern about the person who owns it. There's no personal stewardship of property when, when the property in the world it sits upon is meaningless. By the way, what's the foremost property that you own? Your vessel. The very thing that you have right in front of you. Your person. Who you are. Your, your human beingness. You're made in the image of God. That's what you have. And that's, this, th that idea of property rights carries into the issue of abortion, right? Dehumanize them. Don't connect it to the image of God. Dehumanize, depersonalize, devalue, destroy, and discard. Now, the same thing goes for punishment, because I want to deal with the issue of the death penalty, because I think it's important. We have, we have a culture that cares deeply about state disobedience, so much so that the humanists will seek out the state in order to protect their infanticidal wishes. So, talk about power and subjugation. They want not only Roe, they don't want Roe to be overturned. By the way, lest you think I'm making this up, there has been talks in Congress to codify abortion rights not just a court opinion anymore with Roe v. Wade. They want it to become law, like actual pass through Congress where you have the right to do that. Um, so again, murderous culture. <laughs> but when it comes, for example, to getting the, getting the shot, there's no care in the world about bod bodily autonomy. Suddenly the position changed, right? I have a right to discard the child in my womb. I have a right to assassinate that child. You cannot tell me anything different, but you better get the shot but you better get the jab. See, here's the thing. We know that that's not a principled position. It's just a subjective desire that suits their needs, right, in the moment. We know that. <coughs> and this is also the reason why you can have a leftist gender studies degree holder stand out in front of abortion clinics demanding the blood of a child, while at the same time yelling at you for enjoining yourself to something so archaic as the death penalty. While they protect the death penalty for innocent people. Heard it a million times. When you depersonalize the personal absolute God, and when you elevate man over against God, you get a law that is bendable, moldable, it's constantly in flux. That's why things continue to change. That's why now you step into a store, yeah, masks required for the vaccinated too. They're not even hiding the fact that it's trash and doesn't work. That's where we're at. The law is changing. And it's not even law. It's just recommendations or demands, right? I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. But that's where we're at. It's always changing because they live without a standard. 
They live without God. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that the, the biblical worldview is not one section in your life, but it's actually the whole enchilada. As such, we need to offer several things to the world in order to deal with this problem of murder and violence. And we do this in two ways. One, we preach the gospel. We preach the death and resurrection and the rule and reign of Christ. That has to be the foremost of our efforts. Two, we demonstrate from this gospel, which is revealed to us in the scriptures, that God values human life so much so that he is willing to see it that true justice takes root in a culture. So the death penalty, what should we think about that? The Bible tells us that the death penalty ought to be held up for murderers. To be clear, the death penalty applied to a lot of crimes, things like rape and kidnapping, adultery, homosexuality, witchcraft, blasphemy, Sabbath desecration, propagation of false doctrine, sacrificing to false idols, incest, bestiality, and so on. So there's a laundry list. Some of these, can, it can be argued, don't apply anymore. I don't believe that the Sabbath violations apply uh, anymore in the New Covenant, something we touched on a couple of weeks ago. But, but since the death penalty for murder transcends Moses, right, it comes to us in Genesis, an argument, argument can be made rather solidly, in my opinion, that it ought to continue in the New Covenant era. Part of the reason for the death penalty is to make men scared and fearful. That's why it was there. Modern people are fine with the state killing however they see fit, but what about how God sees fit? Do we care what God thinks about life and how justice should be carried out? God is the Lord of life and death, and the commandment here in the sixth word essentially says, only kill in the name of God. The death penalty for murder is killing in the name of God because God set it up this way. So to unjustly murder someone is to kill in your name, right? That's what people do. They're killing in their own name, not God's name. They're killing in, in their own terms, in their own name. And thus it's an assault on God because this person has taken the image of God from that person unjustly. To exact that punishment, God requires restitution. He requires an exact punishment, a penalty, the death penalty. By man's blood, your blood shall be shed. So if, if, if one wants to take the image of God on a person and deface it, a clear act of defiance and rebellion against God, then someone, someone trying to be God then he or she has forfeited his own life, their own life. And that is the logic. Again, personal God, personal law. Now, in our day and age, we would rather send people to prisons, which are nothing but taxpayer-funded retreat centers. Murderers rarely receive the death penalty in our nation, uh, rarely spend life in prison. In fact, I was shocked. A lot of them, most spend less than 30 years in jail, some less than 10 years. Is this justice? Not according to God. The death penalty is put in place so that men will fear God. The magistrate, along with a jury and participating witnesses, is to see to it that a murderer is put to death. And this is so that all may fear, as Exodus and Deuteronomy tells us. This fear is supposed to make men think twice about what they intend to do in the future. And this is a good thing. People are less reluctant to commit a crime like that if they know that the penalty will be pretty steep. Abortions would go down if there was a death penalty for moms and dads who attempt to murder their child. But, but, I hear this too. You've heard it maybe. Well, that, that, then it's going to put it into the back alley. Right, and guess what we should do? We should prosecute those crimes too. 
but we cer certainly don't want it to happen in broad daylight. See, God's law puts a tremendous value on human life, so much so that when that value is violated, God acts swiftly. The personal God deals with persons, individuals who bear his image and are expected to live according to his will. And this is why restitution is put in place for things like theft, which, which we'll get to. Wrapping up. So, question. Do you have anger in your heart towards someone? Anger can come out one of two ways. It can be imposed upon someone with the sword of your tongue, thus hating them and killing them with your words. Or it can come out with your hands, violently attempting to hurt them or kill them. And Jesus says that we're not supposed to have hate in our heart. But it's not just that we don't do something. Instead, we're to actively do something, namely pursue righteousness. Did you hear what Annabelle read in that passage? It's not just don't have hate in your heart. There's something you're supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to come, be, overcome evil with good. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. Do you pray for your enemies? And it can be prayers of judgment. That's fine too. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, I do that all the time. Do you pray for your enemies? Um, do you heap burning coals upon their head by potentially giving them not just your shirt, but your winter coat as well? See, the law isn't just negative. It's not merely don't kill people or don't get angry and murder them in your heart. It's positive too. And it's positive meaning that leave your offering at the altar and go make it right with someone. Don't hold bitterness in your heart towards the person next to you. Don't take your Christian neighbor to court. Follow 1 Corinthians 6. See, the whole point of the command is to take responsibility on yourself to protect life. So, men and women, depending on your comfort level, but definitely you should have a gun and you should be carrying it. You should be protecting yourself. You should be protecting your family. You should protect, protect your home. You should protect the person, in the, 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 the little old lady at the grocery store who, who may get mugged. You need to be ready to take responsibility. That's how you can honor this commandment. Take responsibility of your family to protect. That's obeying the command. Jesus did not come to destroy the image of God. That's what murder is. Rather, he comes to restore it in us. He speaks the words of life. He doesn't kill. He lays down his life for his friends. May that be said of us. Let's pray. Father, you've been gracious to us. You've called us out of darkness and into light. And, and we do pray, Lord, in light of some of these sobering statistics, we pray that your gospel would go forward, that your church would rise up, that we would see a protection of life, not the taking of life. We know your word tells us that, that Satan, the accuser, was a murderer from the beginning. And we also know that he was delighted to see Jesus die on the cross. But what he didn't know is that power of death was exhausted in the resurrection of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that. Father, help us to positively protect this command, to protect life. Uh, Lord, to see to it that we are taking that responsibility that you've given us. And we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.